Could you imagine how bad a Roland Emmerich Oppenheimer would be? I don't know who that is. He's the disaster film director who's done all the disaster films oh. ever. Like okay. Moonfall was his latest one. And he also did The Patriot, which I know you uh, you have feelings about. I do. Ben Bowden, BC. I, I thought you hated The Patriot. No, I, I don't care. Okay. Maybe in high school. <laughs> in high school, you did, because we were, well, while they're doing this, uh, we were going on that road trip and we were get we were bringing movies and i brought the patriot and you were so mad about it you're like this movie's dumb why would you bring that and then we picked joe up and he also had a copy of the patriot <laughs> constitution thumping homeschoolers we shouldn't be in charge i take it all back Hello, and welcome to yet another and long-belated episode of The Problem with Reading. Or should I say watching, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm Jensen. And here we are, coming off a hot summer of movies, blockbusters, Barbenheimer, Wes Anderson, all the classics. I know we've been very delayed in getting to the things that we're supposed to be reading and talking about, and we're going to be more delayed, because we're here to talk about the movies instead. We all went and saw the three, well, the two biggest movies and then the one sort of pick-me of the uh, summer. That, and that would, of course, be Barbenheimer and Asteroid City by Wes Anderson. And we are here to give you the rundown, the vibes, the top takes, and the, you know, essential guide to the movies uh, just like a month and a half too late. Gentlemen, how are we feeling? Oh, feeling very good. Very excited for this. It's been far too long since we've been on this uh, this podcast. Good to be back. I'm happy to be back as a guest star. I, I think I've only ever talked about Star Wars on here, so it is on brand to talk about something watching, not reading, but uh, excited to you know expand my horizons a little bit with some uh, philosophical movies. One of these days, Jensen, we will get you to read. We'll, we'll actually, we'll finally teach you how to read because, you know, I, I think it's probably about that time. Is it? Maybe he's actually doing the right thing. I, you know, there are some some problems with reading, but you know, one thing that no one has oh. ever said anyone has a problem with that's drinking. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? Yeah, so I'm drinking a um, so lame saying this. I'm drinking a Topo Chico hard seltzer, the tropical mango flavor. Uh, it was my wife's birthday over the weekend, and we told some friends to bring drinks, and so we had a friend who brought a whole case of these. I've never had them before. I've seen them in stores. We put them in the fridge and then promptly forgot about them. So we have 12 seltzers that need to be consumed so we can uh, reclaim our produce drawer. Um, <clears throat> it's quite good, actually. Can I ask, so you said that that's tropical mango. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative to that? Temperate mango. Temperate mango? <laughs> Tundra mango? I don't know. I mean, I it's I think it's pretty redundant. All right. mango. Well, speaking of redundant, Stephen, what are you drinking? Uh, well, Sam, if you felt lame, I'm here to make you feel any better. I'm drinking... A glass of water. That's not even a glass. That's a it's mug. mug of water. It's a mug of water. It, it, it's it's the CMSC, so it's my my department mug. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, I, I I'm ashamed, gentlemen. I'm ashamed. The only worst thing would be not having a drink. So yeah, I got home and didn't want to go out to the store and realized I had absolutely nothing to drink. So here we are. Not even tea, apparently. Jensen, how about you? Uh, I have with me today a Mike's Hard Limeade because we are in the process of moving. So the uh, alcohol section has not quite made it out of the truck yet, as it were. But so, there we go. 
so I mean, fun story. Uh, Steven's moving too, but apparently he can't pull himself together to get a Mark's hard, hard limeade like you can, Jensen. So you're already points up and are, you know, well under contention to replacing one of the three legs of the stool. Hey, now! <laughs> Brevin, Brevin's back in the country and uh, firing at everyone He's here. Firing, man! Well, you know, you come back, you start trimming the, th- the fat. As for myself, I am drinking a uh, glass of porter that I actually bottled myself a full year ago, put in the fridge and forgot about. And it tastes pretty good. And a, a year is about... So this was bottled on uh, uh, August 16th, uh, 2022, and it is now August 29th, 2022. So slightly past the best used by date, but it tastes pretty good. So honestly, I'm I'm pretty proud of myself. So you bottled it right after our last podcast episode, basically. Yes. Yeah. Great. No. Well, bottling beer, as we all know, is a very complex, nuanced, difficult to understand chemical reaction. Uh, but speaking of various kinds of reactions, the first film is. Oppenheimer. Jensen, what's the vibe? Vibe of Oppenheimer. Uh, depression, according to all the memes that came out before Barbie. And in reality, I didn't... I mean, it is a depressing movie in, in some aspects. And certainly when you take into account the guy's life and like his own personal kind of meaning. And one one scene in particular that I, I think back to is like his, is it his female friend is like, if you treat everybody the way that you treat me, then you're not going to have any friends. And he's like, well, they don't have a choice because I'm the genius of the world. And like, it just, it, it's such a a sad mindset to just think that you're so far above everyone that you can just treat everyone else however you want to and they don't have a choice but to interact with you. But all that said, uh, Killian Murphy gives an incredible performance. The uh, score is great. It is Nolan's third highest grossing domestic film uh, that he's ever made, which I was surprised to hear. Uh, does anyone want to take a guess at what the top two are? Nolan having directed Interstellar Inception, the Batman trilogy. Yeah, gotta be probably, Inception. I was gonna say Dark Knight Rises, probably and Inception. Rises and uh, Dark Knight. So the two, two oh, Batman, Batman's okay. two and three. Yep. So okay. uh, anyway, that was interesting. But the general uh, vibe of the film is that very, very critically acclaimed. The cast is just absolutely star-studded, starting with Killing Murphy in the lead role, and just a ridiculous number of uh, name-supporting cast members, including uh, you know uh, Robert Downey Jr., Remy Malek, Gary Oldman. Uh, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt. I'm just just rattle those off at the top of my head. There's so so many, and like every time you rewatch it, you probably notice a new one. Um, and then one thing that I found interesting was that the score was not a Hans Zimmer score, which uh, Nolan almost always uses, but instead he had uh, Ludwig Göransson, who has done uh, a number of great works, including the Mandalorian score he's known for, and also the New Girl soundtrack, which I thought was pretty funny. But uh, I one 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 kind of interesting connection I found between a couple of Nolan's films was to me, the score and I'm interested to hear your take a little bit, Sam is it reminded me a little bit of interstellar, how they have that high pitched motif when something is going wrong and it just kind of drones and drones. And the, I found a similar sort of uh, whining, almost air raid siren sound in this movie that kind of goes along as, as things kind of devolve into uh, mental madness, if you will. But uh, overall, Negative takes are pretty much the movie's long. Second half is boring, which you could argue for sure. Um, but overall, most people uh, definitely seem to think that it is a hit if a bit bloated and not rewatchable. All right. So uh, the takes. So I give it a nine out of 10 beautiful New Mexico sunset vistas. Um, and I have a few thoughts. Uh, first, that the 
the the length has been brought up, but I thought for a three hour long biopic where the only quote unquote action sequence was the actual uh, detonation, uh, which was itself eerie and just sublimely done. Uh, my goodness, I, I thought he did a great job kind of keeping the attention really glued to the screen. I think probably my largest criticism I could level towards it was indeed towards the th third act. It got pretty convoluted as Nolan is wont to do. He sometimes seems a little bit too clever for his own good. Um, but I did think it was an interesting decision to make the climax of, uh, at, uh, of the movie the trial rather than the detonation itself. That's what I was anticipating. I thought it was going to be like all building up, detonate, and then you have falling action, Japan surrenders, done, done. Um, but no, they made it the trial. And I thought that was a very bold move, and I, I thought it paid off, um, even if it made it somewhat confusing and possibly in need of a second watch. Um, one kind of side note, I really like how even-handed they were with the political messaging. Um, it was filled with communism at the time, uh, the, the controversial decision to bomb Japan itself. And there is kind of, in our own time, this kind of trend of America bad political sensibilities in a lot of movies. And I thought Nolan did a great job not preaching, just kind of telling the story and letting it happen. I, I never once felt preached at, which, I don't know, in a lot of movies, I, that, that, that's a win in my book. Um, and then last, just kind of of historical notes, uh, the author of American Prometheus, the, the um, biography of um, Oppenheimer, the, he praised Nolan, said that he did just about as good a job as he could have uh, kind of taken from the book and putting it to the screen. So, I mean, I, I think it would have been hard to improve other than maybe streamlining a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, not not a whole host of unique takes here for me. I enjoyed the movie. I definitely wouldn't say I felt the three hour runtime myself. I was interested in what was going on. I felt like it was pretty well laid out in terms of uh, who's explaining what and kind of, uh, like you said, Stephen, the political commentary or sorry, political happenings of the day are pretty, pretty well laid out. You can kind of get a good grasp of like, you know, where the United States is feeling things with the Red Scare and all that and how Oppenheimer's kind of towing the line about like, you know, what is the right social mentality to have in terms of how do we how do we approach these things and i i found that very fascinating it's something i definitely didn't know about him um not that i would consider myself any kind of expert um but yeah i, I think it's a solid eight out of ten movie i'm a big fan of nolan's work um, i greatly enjoyed the different visuals that they used and the way that they illustrated some of the science things that i have no uh, dream of understanding um in, in the real world but in the movie it was it was very entertaining and well done, I thought, uh, and engrossing as well. Um, and yeah, big highlight for me was the score, like I mentioned before. And of course, the acting. Um, Remy Malek really, really uh, came came in at the end there, clutch. Uh, oh, one, one side highlight that I haven't really heard too many people talking about is I really enjoyed his wife. His wife's, the character of his wife was very, very fascinating to me. And in a movie with very few female characters, I think she, one, acted her shoes off, um, but also portrayed a very, very flawed uh, woman. And I would be very curious to hear more about what the actual character, uh, the actual person in his history was like. And in particular, her kind of redemption scene uh, in the in the trial that they cut to um, post the dropping of the bomb. And one other thing of note is the thing probably everybody had the first question of when they finished watching the movie is the black and white scenes being kind of the unaltered truth of this is like a recorded document of what happened, which is mostly inside the hearing itself. Um, and I think that that ties interestingly with some of the other movies so i'll talk a little bit more about that later um but it kind of was a very nolan -y thing to do to shift the perspective and the the time of the scenes so yeah eight out of ten 
New Mexico buttes for me. Yeah, just to to jump in on the talking about the wife character, she really is this fascinating side that's very much a, a side story. But then I think when you step back, it it ties into a lot of the themes of the movie, which we'll talk about somewhat, but you know, not necessarily in in that much depth. But the contrast between her and sort of the communist uh, lover, seductress, and the degree to which, you know, the wife is like never, ever shown as an object of desire, maybe in one scene. And she's very much this, you know, sort of hardline, alcoholic, uh, anti-family. She like hates their kids. And it's just this fascinating look at the domestic side of the life of the mind, but also she was a member of the Communist Party too, but it's a very different kind of view that she embodies of, I guess, of the feminine or of a wife, a lover, a partner, as opposed to the somewhat gratuitous nude scenes that we are subjected to on behalf of the the other sort of compromising communist figure. I think I agree with the sentiments that have been expressed so far. I also give it eight out of ten vistas. The pacing was was great. I thought it gave a thorough overview of his life. It never felt rushed, but it was very, very evocative, very um captivating. And it did not feel like a three hour movie. It ended and I there are a few three hour movies I've watched where they end and I wanna keep learning about the person. Um and this was one of them. Um but then the pacing that the, that length of a movie allowed Nolan to really sit into in the discomfort, both of the detonation and how um, terrifying that was, but yet kind of exciting for everybody involved. And then also the discomfort of the hearing and actually give that justice. Um, and he was able to do that. And maybe it's just because of the length of the film. He was able to do that without losing the viewer, despite the fact that he, his dialogue was as always covered up by the score and uh, we were shuffling around time, and yet I was never, my wife was never lost. We were all tracking and very captivated by it. Um, the conclusion was unsatisfying, and I loved that. I thought that it, he wasn't trying to redeem this character. He wasn't, but he also wasn't trying to just criticize America over, you know, overtly for, you know, persecuting this guy. Um, but yet he was able to call out. It was just, he was a very even handed take, um, which was impressive to see. Um, and a nuanced take where it w- we would want to see our protagonist be you know, somebody that we really can feel for. And we couldn't, I mean, we could in some aspects, but he did do some pretty terrible things, uh, especially with his family life that we just kind of have to see and move past. Um, I also enjoyed the subjective perspective of showing a lot of the story from his eyes, but then also cutting back to the objective in black and white. Um, the challenge of this is that it does leave out some aspects of his life. And I, I haven't read American Prometheus, so I'm not sure um, you know, if there's anything that was left out. But the bit about his family, I would have loved to see more about how like how this impacted his family life because I mean Noel makes a point of like the kid just shows up uh one day like as a you know what a one or two year old and that I think conveyed the message that um Oppenheimer was totally in his own world and wasn't really caring about it. But I would have liked to see more about how it was affecting that. Um so overall great film. Won't be rewatching it anytime soon, but that's mainly just because three hours is a lot of time. Yeah, three hours is a lot of time. And you know, kudos to those who sat through that without feeling it uh you know lost in the life of the mind as for me unfortunately the needs of the flesh uh reasserted themselves upon reality because i had a very very large icy that i was drinking 
and that asserted itself right about the time of the uh, Trinity test. So I was just like there in pain, trying to hold on to like not miss what I knew was going to be the most pivotal scene. And there was so much lead up to it, and I should have just gone before, but I waited all the way through. And I was just terrified that it was going to be like just this massive like audio, visual, like rumbling, physical shock that may you know cause me to lose full control of myself. So I was anticipating that, uh, but then it was silent, and it was you know quite fortunate. And then you know there was a lot of sort of uh, quiet discussing and what have we done, and let's let's tell the news and blah 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 afterwards. So I I escaped quickly and uh, made it to the rest of the movie. Um, so, uh, yes, three hours is a very long time. I, I, I think my main take is the black and white in color is quite interesting. I certainly agree there. The problem is my top line thing is just that the movie needs to be recut. And basically all of Robert Downey Jr. needs to be taken out of the movie. It's not important. It doesn't contribute to the actual story or really even the themes of the story. And my bold vision of it, I'm sure, I'm sure someone could do it better, is just like the first 10 seconds of the movie are three three-second shots of him like lying in bed at Cambridge, him seeing the, the bomb go off, and then him uh, in front of the tribunal. And then you just work your way up to those three scenes throughout the whole rest of the movie. Uh, and the... Because the black and white is interesting. Like, it is true that there is this weird gap between what you know and what you don't know when you're doing a historical story like this. But the problem is, is that the framing narrative is around this one character and this one uh, sort of like sub story that doesn't actually contain the main story. The best link that it has is talking about Oppenheimer's legacy and him, and him allowing himself to be tarred and feathered so that he can, you know, receive some absolution via his uh, demonization. Like history will show him that that he was really on the right side of this all the time. I mean, but arguably that's very much not even true. The point, though, is just that the drama of those scenes is a distraction and is on another level of importance from the primary, most important scenes of the movie, and it's not compelling enough to contain the very interesting, very powerful narrative. And it breaks it up in ways that aren't always necessarily helpful, uh, and so it's just, it's sort of a net drag on a film that really could have focused on, you know, this guy's visions. And I second what Jensen said, the visuals were really, really good, especially when he's a young student and he's seeing these waves and patterns and imagining this hidden invisible world that you can prove mathematically is there, but you can't see. And he's haunted by this. He's haunted by black holes and trying to, you know, figure out how you can possibly even observe them. And, and it's this, you know, it's this haunted magical world that he's observing and he gets closer and closer in into it. But then suddenly he becomes a politician and he follows down that path. And eventually the vision that he finally is that he gets to at the end of all of his passion, his search for mystery, that then his turn is a vision of, he of hell that he creates. And I think that is where you needed to focus the images because uh, those dropped off o over the course of, of the film and you very much lost the scientist side of it, which is historically accurate and could be the point. But the problem is it's contained within the other politics story, which then distracts you to thinking that that's what's important when it's not. Um, yeah, so the movie needs a recut. Nonetheless, hard to argue with any of the individual bits of craftsmanship. So seven out of ten. Uh, beautiful New Mexico vistas for me. One thing I will say is uh, a comment my girlfriend really wanted me to share here is when she 
was in the theater, she actually um, had a method by which to kind of condense the movie on her own, which was to take about a 30 minute nap right before the bomb went off. And it cut it down to like a perfect two hour, 30 minutes for her that really just kind of brought the whole thing together. And she didn't think like she missed anything she was following. So um, anyway, if you feel the need, you can either skip that portion or just take a little nap and, you know, you probably deserve it. So uh, feel free to do so. One one quick thought I have just on the length. So Nolan's uh, on record saying that like movies need to be seen in theaters. Um, it must be this like grand cinematic experience. And I have to wonder if the whole this is a really long movie is actually in his mind a feature rather than a bug. That this isn't a movie you want to see sitting on your couch at home. It's only a movie that's good in the theater with popcorn and pop and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's the case. Actually, on that note of seeing it in the theater, I saw it at a at an Alamo Draft House in New York. We made a date night out of it, which is like one of the movie theaters where they serve you like food and like cocktails and stuff. And they like scurry down in front of you and bring you your food like so they don't get in the way of anybody. It's really... It's really great, actually. It's a fun experience. Um, But we had the opportunity if we had, well, if we had waited a week, really. I mean, it was honestly a time thing to try to hit the podcast date last week. But we could have um, gotten tickets to be on the very edge of the IMAX at Lincoln Center, where they have one of the uh, coveted 30 roles of IMAX film. And the movie, and I was like, I don't know, it's going to make that big a difference. I'm not a huge film buff. It's a little expensive. We have to wait a week anyway, so postpone the podcast. We'll just do this. And within about just those first few shots of him in in Cambridge of having the visions of the bomb, I knew we'd made a mistake. Um, And I really, really wish we had gone to see it in the third or in the 60 millimeter uh, film at at IMAX. It was still on film um, at the theater, but not IMAX. Well, speaking of the visions of hell and invisible worlds and also New Mexico Vista, Stephen, did your uh, summer extravaganza into said deserts uh, give you any special insight into this film? <laughs> uh, I mean, not not exactly. It was, I mean, I was working for a laboratory that was, uh, it's pretty much a, a daughter laboratory of the one that he founded. So I would say, if anything, it just gave me more like personal pride in that, like, oh, wow, I'm working on something that was started by such a great, like, if flawed, man, just still such a great individual, um, along with like some of the best scientists that the world has ever seen. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe a great scientist, not a great man, I think I would say, um, but some of the greatest scientists that the world has ever seen. And I get to kind of carry on that tradition. So, I mean, Unironically, I did leave the theater with kind of a smile on my face, thinking like, "Wow, I'm I'm part of something special," even if that special something is like ushering in in, in the age of the uh, nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, I was going to say, what uh, is the percentage chance that the work that you do will ignite the atmosphere? Because that might be a relevant thing to consider. Near zero, near zero. But speaking of uncertainty, not too much violence. Maybe our next film, Asteroid City, Sam. What's the vibe? Yeah, so the vibe, I mean, this is a massively different vibe than um, Oppenheimer or Barbie. It's a very small film. It's Wes Anderson, but even by Wes Anderson standards, it's pretty um, indie feeling. The vibe is confused. The critics all seem divided on it. I read a few reviews, and um, one of my favorite film critics I read consistently, um, Alyssa Wilkinson at Vox, hates Wes Anderson and loves the film. And I saw other reviews of folks who love Wes Anderson and hated the film. So I don't know. There's no really way to know. Like 
the critics are very divided on the film. I think um, I think everybody did did get to the core message, which was more ex- explicitly shouted in this film than basically any of Wes Anderson's other films. Which was that the story you can't really glean a point of the story from reading it, but you have to actually just act it out and live the story, and maybe you can find some meaning from doing that. And our only option really is to keep is to keep on playing our parts, keep on living, keep on inhabiting your role. Um, Box office wasn't great, wasn't terrible. It's it's about double its budget right now, so break even for Wes Anderson, which is not always guaranteed. It slot it would slot in at about fifth uh, highest grossing of all his films, so it actually surpassed Fantastic Mr. Fox, but it's still below Moonrise Kingdom, Isle of Dogs, The Royal Tenenbaums, and of course The Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, one of my personal favorites. Um, a lot of critics were really frustrated with the film, uh, saying it was kind of the classic, like, meaningless Wes Anderson, that none of his films have really any message behind them. Um, but others were more sympathetic, praising the visuals um, and also the, the layering mechanism, which was far more clear, and I would agree, um, better done than The French Dispatch, a film that I liked, but it's on the lower end of Wes Anderson for me. So my takes, I mean, I would give it nine... Um, Ash Mother Tupperwares out of 10. Um, I I really liked it. Uh, I thought the message was incredibly interesting. And it was actually, there's a lot of, it was, it was Wes Anderson taking his classic visual style, which I enjoy and his dry humor and um, actors who love working for him and all that. And, um, and packing a really strong philosophical punch behind it where you don't quite, you don't necessarily need to know your role in the grand scheme of things to just keep acting out. I thought that was good. It was interesting. Conversation starter. On the flip side, uh, that could just be Wes Anderson justifying himself. Uh, After 20 years of critics telling him that his films have no point, he shouts back at them with, probably one of his more visually pleasing films. Um, well, you're just not getting it. You just need to, you just need to experience the story and stop asking about the point. Um, and uh, I, I had that thought coming out of the theater about maybe it's just him justifying himself. And, and jokingly, I've come to think that's probably true. That's probably what he's doing here. And if that's what he's doing, then more power to him because we need people like him making films. I want him to keep making films. And if, if anything makes others more enjoyable for me. Also, the making of the film is super interesting. Um, I watched some interviews with some, with some of the cast and making of the film. And basically, I mean, it was made during COVID, um, obviously, uh, not just from the plot about quarantine, which was a little on the nose, but um, it was made during COVID in actually like this, uh, this remote area of Spain, of all places. And they they brought all the cast out there, you know, did their 14-day quarantine or whatever. And then they basically had just, like, all these A-list actors and, like, a tiny skeleton crew. And they had set up all these rocks and they just built a town in the middle of this, like, prairie in Spain. And um, they just were, like, out there in this town and shot the film. And so, like, the town that we see is, like, that's the set. And that's all they had to work with. Um, which I thought was well, I thought was pretty cool, and even like a lot of the actors said it was really refreshing to work on a project with with like a tiny crew, and it felt like an indie film um, again. So that was that was cool, and I'm glad the end product was um, was so nice. So yeah, I uh, I also enjoyed the movie. Um, visual style just incredibly fun to look at. The pastel colors and just the nice red sand and blue sky and everything. Um, I also thought it was incredibly funny. Uh, I I wish I could like quote off for you the prayers by the character Billy who like walks off the bus and feels like this 
just rapid fire rambling uh, thing that is just a very, as a teacher, it's a very classic like eight year old thing to do that I've seen a million times. And I just, it was hilarious. And he did that a couple times throughout the movie. It was very entertaining. Uh, additionally, it I, I haven't seen all of Wes Anderson's films. I've seen probably three, maybe this is the fourth. And it felt to me, and it's funny you mentioned they just built a town in the middle of nowhere because to me, the movie felt like if like Wes Andersonville was like a world and everybody had a Wes Anderson accent, which is to, you know, the manner of speaking where they go, oh, I, I actually forgot about my uh, lunch at work, actually. You know, like that's the way that they talk is a very distinct kind of cadence where they're every single person is like a quirky, like probably reads a lot and stuff. But and that was like every single person in this movie, uh, with the exception of like maybe nobody. I don't know. I'm trying to think if the Scarlett Johansson's character, maybe Scarlett Johansson's character, slightly. But even 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 she, like, I mean, she lays in a bathtub like with pills and pretends to be dead. And <laughs> you're like, oh wait, <laughs> like I don't know. So to me, it was very just like Wes Anderson in his element, apparently quite literally, and all these actors just having a blast. Um, but at the end of the day, like I don't know the. It was funny. This is the third movie I saw of the three. Um, I watched it last week and I thought it was interesting how it kind of didn't seem to say a lot. And hearing Sam's take, I think, first is helpful because just justifying his own existence is it is a meaning at least. Right. But in sharp contrast with Barbie, this movie like seemed to actively be like, oh, the meaning. Yeah. I mean, it's there if you look for it. Or not, you know, like whatever. I'm I'm just sleeping here on the couch. Like, go do your thing, or don't. Whatever. Like, I, it was just a very kind of blase take that I found a very interesting contrast with the uh, the other movies that either had a very sharp like here is a very flawed character trying to like justify himself and his life and everything, and then Barbie who's kind of like here's a million messages and you have to like figure out which one we want you to hear the most. But this one's like ah eh, the message is there or it isn't. And you can kind of figure that out. So I think for me, it's a six, maybe trending towards like a six and a half, seven. I did like it visually very pleasing. It was funny. Actors did a great job. They were incredibly on their uh, Wes Anderson isms in this one. And yeah, six and a half Tupperwares or six, six Tupperwares and one, one half full of uh, Mother Ashes for me. So for my, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear you say that you thought it was funny because I think that there were a few funny moments there's the kid that said that that is constantly saying dare me to do x and then there's the prayer kid maybe like the daughters are supposed to be a source of comedic relief but they aren't that funny uh and uh my wife's comment was just that it was really like compared to fantastic mr fox or isle of dogs maybe even moonrise kingdom it was a lot more stretches of uh, just not fun. Like it was the problem with trying to tell a story about how things are, are meaningless, but you have to kind of like muddle through anyway, is that to get to the, the environment of meaninglessness that ca the characters have to muddle through is you have to make the audience sit through that too. And that was a lot for the first half of the movie to have to go through all of that. And the Wes Anderson style was great, was on point, was in full strong effect. But I think, I felt like at times I was almost watching a, a Wes Anderson parody, like that YouTube channel that does like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and does like a very formulaic Wes Anderson thing. And then there was one scene in Asteroid City that did like, for this we'll need 
And like, it sounded just exactly like the YouTube video for like two seconds. And I was like, oh no, no, don't do that. The point would just be that through the first half, which really leans into like the grief and the meaninglessness and how do you, you know, what's, what is it like to live with that? That's really hard for the audience to, to sit through, I think. And then the second half, once the alien comes and you start getting, okay, so what happens when something jogs you awake? That's the more interesting part. And I think there are interesting messages to be had there. Um, the playing parts is a very interesting angle. I mean, the other sort of maxim of the movie, though, is you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, which the entire cast like walks towards the camera chanting this loudly at the end of the movie, which, you know, there's probably a couple different ways you could go with the interpretation. But the main one is just sort of that waking up justifies sleeping more or less, that it means that it's it's okay if you wake up and found out that you were sort of going through life, uh, you know, basically sleepwalking or dead because, you know, you're awake now and you can't wake up if, if you don't fall asleep. And that's how you get through grief is you wake up and it's fine to be asleep, uh, but just as, as, as long as you wake up in the end. So I think there was a there, there, there was a message. I think like a lot of other Hollywood movies, there's a lack of, let's say, metaphysical understanding on Wes Anderson parts that puts a tight ceiling over the world that he's constructed, despite the alien coming in and out of it. Um, that the alien is a dead end, actually. That there, that there is no meaning. It's just inscrutable cataloging and then going away. But there's no reason. There's no meaningful interaction uh, in between them. And then the final line from the sun, I don't believe in God anymore. It's like, yeah, that sounds about right in this world that, that, that he's constructed. Uh, so for me, six Tupperwares. Um, definitely Oppenheimer was the more masterfully uh, constructed movie. I enjoyed it, uh, but it was a little bit of a slog at points. And it did feel to me, I think, a little a little formulaic. I think he could have done something a, a little more. I'll, I'll just jump in and say, like, if you thought there were long stretches of not fun in this movie, try The French Dispatch, where the entire two and a half hour runtime is a long stretch of not fun. Um, so maybe that was part of it. It's like this was coming off of uh, that being the last new Wes Anderson movie I watched. So this was like, okay, he's going to make a fun movie again, or at least there is some humor in it. Um, but anyway, Stephen. And I'll start my review with saying the exact opposite that I watched French Dispatch and actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun, really kind of clever and like the aesthetic, liked the classic Anderson. And then I went into Ashford City. So I'll start off with saying that there was a bit of a disconnect between expectations and reality. I thought this was going to be a very straightforward Wes Anderson take on Alien Arrival. And when I got in, I saw it was a super meta, super, no, we're actually making a movie about a play about an Alien Arrival, and we're also going to be skipping a bunch of scenes. And I was really pumped for the classic Wes Anderson on Alien Arrival and thought it would be delightfully absurd. Um, I really really got irritated by the love letter to acting um that's what it seemed that this was a love letter to the art of acting and to hollywood and to how glorious and noble a tradition is which to be fair acting does have a very long and very glorious tradition but hollywood just congratulating itself over and over again especially in the last few years when they produce nothing but stinkers it just doesn't seem like the best timing for a love letter to hollywood if anything it seems like it's time to start writing a breakup letter to hollywood um and so i think 
between the meta nature and also just kind of self-congratulatory attitude, I got really irritated really fast. Um, I, there were bits of Anderson that I really appreciated. Yeah, like Jensen brought up, like kind of the quirky way of speaking. And honestly, the the palette, the color palette was delightful. Um, the acting, the lines, just kind of all of this. And this, I will say, refer back to my thesis on the Batman. Hollywood has perfected the technical art of movie crafting. As I said, acting, directing, sound, set, camera, everything was on point. It was great. What was lacking was a moving story. Um, though I would contend that this was because Anderson kind of got too smart and too meta for his own good. I think he had a cool idea and then just wanted, it, like, didn't think it was going to stand on its own. Um, and then as the last kind of postscript for that, I would say that if you want a love letter to Hollywood, that's also kind of at worst a nihilistic uh, coup de vide, at best an existentialist, like kind of cry of survival, the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar is a much better story for that message. And so I say six Tupperwares filled with mother's ashes and they're buried without ceremony. Any responses? No, I mean, I don't think any of those are wrong. Um, again, I walked out of it and I was shocked that my wife enjoyed it. I was shocked that the friends we were with enjoyed it because I'm like, man, that was a weird movie. I I loved it. I'm a little worried that I liked it, but... Um, you're in good company like uh, my friend who's a massive Wes Anderson fan, uh, fan loved this one the I, I went with a couple of interns and one of the guys who was also a pretty big Anderson film said that this one was his favorite so like I'll admit that I'm not necessarily the majority here I just still think you're all wrong yeah no, I mean I'll, I'll agree it's it's and I, I guess the, the love letter to acting was probably the part that I found least interesting it was like the internal like dynamics of the story of like coping with grief and also like quarantine i mean like we have we all these quarantine movies that we're gonna look back on and just be like so pained by them like glass onion and that's the one that comes to mind mainly but and asteroid city but i thought this was more tactfully done than other films i'd seen that like throw quarantine out there as like a common thing um and i and I like the long, the kind of the ability to kind of sit in there with the long dialogue between the uh, the father and Scarlett Johansson. I don't remember their characters' names, but I thought that was, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like the, the stuff that was happening in the story was interesting. The stuff that was happening completely outside the story was interesting. But then like the meta beyond that of the love letter to acting and anything else he was trying to say was slightly less so. Or the nuclear age stuff like that. I don't know. I was less interested by that beyond this connection to Oppenheimer that it's ironic that you know, one of the biggest movies um, of the last few years about atom bomb testing. Uh, and then this movie comes out right before it. And that's like just kind of going on in the background just because um, kind of uh, coincidence. I had one more thought. Uh, well, one on the subject of quarantine movies. Did any of you guys see Kimmy? K-I-M-I? Mm-hmm. No. Just don't bother. It was so bad. It was like about a girl who like wants to quarantine herself because she's afraid of germs, and then she like has to not. It's it's so it's so frustrating to watch. Uh, anyway, but I uh, I found kind of a interesting linkage between our three movies, and with with Oppenheimer, we obviously talked about the black and white portion, and in this movie, you have kind of a callback to um, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone guy, you know, Brian Cranston comes through, and he's he's in black and white, and he's describing, you know what's going on as the narrator. And I, I didn't quite understand the part where he actually like appeared in the play. I, that felt that was a little too deep for me to decipher. But um, so in Oppenheimer, we have black and white shift of perspective, right? In this movie, we have like a breaking the fourth wall character who comes in in black and white. And then at the end of the film, we have Margot Robbie appear as like a random cameo, which is 
also, of course, the lead character in Barbie. So there's like a weird linkage that doesn't, I don't know. I, I, I found that kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I thought I, I, the, the shifting perspective portion for me was kind of interesting and in how it kind of bounced between, we talked about like the actors and the, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep and the acting class and then the backstory of like how the play is written. And as Steven said, the skipping scenes. Um, and I feel like it's designed to make you want to read into it. But then at the end, it just tells you, yeah, but don't bother because there's nothing there. And it, I don't know, it's frustrating, but I feel like it's supposed to be, I don't know if that makes me like it more or less, but I guess it is what it is, right? That's what the the mess the movie wants me to, to say at the end of all this. So that's it. It is what it is. <laughs> now that is a very, uh, Nice little jump that we went from the nuclear bomb in black and white to nuclear testing and black and white, and then finally ending with Margot Robbie and into the main event, the big plastic pink elephant in the room, Barbie. And we saw the people going to theaters dressed all in pink with their dresses and their visors and all that other stuff. But Steven, I really just want to know, what's the vibe? The vibe is, as you said, 100% pink. Uh, yes, indeed, Barbie took the world by storm. It is undeniable that this was an incredible box office phenomenon. Uh, from Box Office Mojo, to which I'll add Dojo Casa House, uh, the box office revenue uh, worldwide was over a billion, um, when last checked, uh, over a billion and a third. And I have very little doubt it will continue growing at least a smidge after this, though most of the phenomenon has ended. I think, I forget where I saw this, but I think Margot Robbie has now became, become the uh, most highly paid actress of all times. Um, I mean, she, she has really found her niche here. Um, the critics, from the critics' perspective, uh, overwhelmingly positive on Rotten Tomatoes, 88% from critics, 83% uh, from verified audience, and 74% from all audiences, which I will actually say that 74% from all audiences, especially given how there were quite a few people that really, really did not like this movie, I would actually argue that 74% is phenomenal. Um, so it, it, it's, it's done a great job as far as critics are concerned. Um, I, I'll, I'll get a little bit into some of the particulars, but I'll try to keep things high level. Um, so most critics touch on the message given, uh, either criticizing or praising the message. And two examples come to mind from both sides of the spectrum. Uh, Manola Dargis, I apologize for butchering that name from the New York Times, uh, praised it for its message, uh, but criticized Mattel's clear softening of criticism of Barbie as unrealistic beauty standards and consumeristic mindset of femininity. Uh, if that doesn't sound familiar, she really, really res resounded uh, with the daughter's thoughts on Barbie. I forget what her name was, but the, the daughter character in Barbie. Uh, critical drinker, kind of the uh, the more conservative movie critic that I uh, tend to follow, uh, said that it was a mean-spirited attack on men, but I thought it was actually kind of a synthesis of the two that was given by Little Platoon uh, in a 2.5-hour long review. But I think his summary can be summed up with the message is kind of all over the place, and that's why it's kind of at best performed a Rorschach test. That's why you do have some people saying like, no, this is actually a surprisingly based movie. And some people saying, no, this is actually like a progressive anthem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he ultimately concludes that he thinks it's kind of the worst case. It's just a completely fragmented and confused message. Um, but I think that would explain some of the Rorschach uh, vibe about it. So a pink Rorschach test is the vibe. Uh, and with that, uh, what are my thoughts, the most important critic, obviously, other than you three distinguished gentlemen? Um, 
So I, I thought there, to be fair, there were a few legitimately funny moments. Uh, Barbie describing the absurd ways that men attract women, for example, I thought that was just kind of on point. The guitar scene was legitimately funny. I flashed right back to undergrad where springtime was filled with undergraduate guys making their mating calls with their guitars. Uh, Ken's linking of the patriarchy with horses and beer was also just hilarious. Um, and even the term Mojo Dojo Casa House was just somehow directly on point. I thought, I thought it was a great bit. Um, though, even with all of this, I could have really done without the snide attitude. I fully admit men are absurd at times, even most times, and by all means we can laugh at the absurdity. How many comedians have made their careers laughing at the absurdities of both men and women? I think there's something perfectly healthy about that. But they're just I couldn't help but feel some undeniable amount of disdain that was packed in this, and some amount of just kind of men bad that felt pretty spiteful. Um, I did think that there was something kind of ironic and I, I'm guessing kind of unintentional about the Barbie's happiness unilaterally increasing when the patriarchy was introduced and then feminism comes in to make them all miserable again. I thought that was odd and probably not the message that they were going for, though I hasten to add, to be fair, there is something kind of Brave New World-esque. Like you look at the horrors in Brave New World and everyone is technically happy, but they're all subdued and simplified and they have and you have uh the savages kind of cry i want all of the complexities of life i don't want the simple existence that you're offering me so i can't in good faith completely deconstruct it but i still kind of smiled at the idea of like oh yeah you have all these angry feminists coming in and making everyone miserable again it's just like a uh, little not sure if that's saying what you what you wanted to say um i did think it was aesthetically delightful if somewhat trippy um see my thesis on batman and now uh, wes anderson it was somewhat odd that they showed the boardroom of mattel as all men when in reality five out of eleven of them are women and that felt dishonest um and that last kind of my last take is but my values is getting really really old as justification for movies i hated it in god's not dead and i hate it in this um i think this was ultimately wasted potential this could have been a really awesome comedy it just got too wrapped up in what it wanted to say um, and forgot that it was just kind of like it could have been a really fun comedy. Um, that said, I cannot deny that my female friends across the board all loved it. And while I hate the excuse it wasn't made for blank group, after all, the best stories are universal, that there actually may be something there um, for this. So I at least have to acknowledge that that is kind of a phenomenon I noticed. So all that to say, I don't think it was the anti-men anthem that some accuse it of being, but it's definitely not pro-men. And the worst accusation I can level at it is that it views gender relations as a zero-sum game. And I ultimately have to disagree with that message. Three Mojo Dojo Casa houses and one horse for the admittedly really, really funny bits. Very good. So I think I'm going to take a uh, diversion on two points you made right at the end. The first is that in terms of who this film is, for and you know like is this a film for 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 women only and so men should just sort of not comment on it i think the thing that makes this different from like a movie like the expendables that is very much not targeted at a female audience is that the expendables is not trying to comment on male female relationships whereas barbie that is sort of a central conflict and theme of it which means necessarily it has to have an answer to at least both sides of the question if it's going to to treat it as a linked as a linked problem. The other thing that you said is that but my values uh and that it was trying to say what it wanted to say more than making a funny movie. I don't think it my my honest opinion probably has to be in the end that it this movie has no idea what it wants to say. That this movie is an incoherent jumble of 
ideas, of philosophies, of all of these things that independently without context sound like good, true things that someone could say. But once you put them next to each other, they are utterly uh, incompatible with each other as any kind of comprehensive worldview or epistemology uh, or ontology or or any uh, such thing. And I, I know that other people have similar views, so I won't go in, into this too far. But I, I will say, like, the other thing that's that's happened in the weeks after watching this movie is sort of talking myself into, like, a very socially conservative interpretation of this movie. And it started off mostly as a joke, but the more that I, like, repeat it to other people and to myself, the more that I find myself believing it. And the way out of this is just to say that the movie is observing various true things whether it likes to or not it's trying to represent aspects of reality and reality breaks through and the and the and various aspects of a socially conservative worldview that are true are breaking through in these moments and thus if you group them together suddenly it becomes like hey the movie's actually saying this thing whereas you could group an entirely separate set of moments together and say ah but it's actually saying this thing and then the real explanation is that, is that it's all incoherent but here is a very brief case just a few key moments depending on how you interpret them for a like incredibly socially conservative interpretation of, of this movie first thing the opening scene Barbie appears to these poor benighted girls who are playing with their dolls. Feminism in all of its glory. What is the first thing that they do as soon as feminism appears on the scene? Exactly. They break their dolls. They murder their children. There's an irrevocable break in between mother and child. Feminism destroys the idea of motherhood, of family, of community. All of these things is broken by Barbie and her non-flat heels. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing it sort of was alluded to is that the utopia that is presented of Barbie land, in a sense, is false utopia. There's something wrong with it, which is why Barbie chooses to leave in the end, is that it's it's fundamentally unreal. And the real world, despite the patriarchy, even in the film, as cartoonishly depicted men being basically, at best, incompetent buffoons or malicious. Those are the only two options. Either you're like a well-meaning idiot or you're like Evie. Those are the only two things that, that, that men are in the real world. But she still chooses that world. But then the final thing is in the scene where she's talking to the god character, the ghost of the creator of Barbie, and she sees a vision of what it is to be a woman, of what it is to be real, of what it is to have life. And the vision, depending on how you interpret it, but what it looks like to me is a vision of raising a child, of being a mother, specifically. That being a woman and the experience of living life is raising a family. And it's a slightly different way that you could view it as just a girl growing up, but I, it looks like it's a mother raising children. And that's the vision that she has the tear roll down her face. And she says, yes, fiat, a Marian yes to the burden, duty, and glory of, of motherhood even. And then the final scene, of course, which is played for laughs, and it's a funny thing, uh, but she goes to, to the gynecologist, once again, linking into what it is to be a real woman, what it is to really live as a woman is tied into your reproduction, into having children, into having a family once again. Uh, so that, again, every time I say it, I become more and more convinced someone can try and talk me out of it. Um, however, this movie for me only gets four Mojo Dojo Casa houses for the reason that there's too much crudeness in here. And as the father of a child, I'm suddenly like super sensitive to that. And like a five minute scene where 
you know, guys are on the beach. I'm going to, I can beat you off so hard. I can beat you off. No, I'm going to beat you. And it's just like that just over and over and over again without rest for a solid, like two and a half minutes was just like, I, this, this, this did not need to be here. This was a poor choice uh, for everyone involved. And for that reason, only four houses, Sam, talk me out of it. Um, yeah. I mean, Steven, I'm going to watch that two and a half hour long video over the next like week. I don't know. Um, because it, that like your, your, 30 second description of it put into words my feeling of the movie. I, I give it three Mojo Doja Casa houses um, because it was just, it really refused to commit to any discernible like ethical framework. And I don't usually fault a movie for that. I mean, Asteroid City, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't much to say there. Um, but this movie was trying to say a lot. I mean, it was, it was innovative because it was saying so much um, and using this form of like a, a blockbuster comedy about a toy um, and trying to convey a strong message. Uh, that's admirable. The question is then, what is that message? Is it just men bad? Um, is it a satire on the patriarchy through the inversion of Barbie land? Is it a critique of like 60s era feminism? And, um, you know, you really need actually to fully liberate women instead of just putting them in this consumerist box? Is it um, a critique of Barbie herself and the toxic view of womanhood that she puts forth and um, consumerism and and how harmful that is to mental health? Um, or is it, and I think is probably the final conclusion of the film, is it some sort of radical individualism detached from gender, sex, or community? Um, any of these would be an interesting message for the film. I mean, I would, I don't mind if it is just a feminist movie crapping on men. I mean, that would be, if the humor was as good as it was throughout the movie, that'd be funny, but that's not where they went with it. Um, and so in the end, I was struggling to figure out, um, what it was trying to communicate. And I think it's going for the radical individualist view, which in my eyes is probably the worst message out of all of these that it could communicate. Um, and it just, it was frustrating to see so many people like it and, and like it for what I saw as fairly superficial reasons. I have a lot of friends who were like, oh yeah, I liked it because, oh, it's so true. Men really do suck. And they're all Ken's. And it was so funny to see. And I'm like, okay, you're my friend. Um, that's really how you see men. And that's really like what you want reinforced by this movie or looking at the daughter's rant as the main point of the movie. I'm like, that was kind of an aside that they did just kind of brushed, brushed off. It was just incredibly unsatisfying. And that's unfortunate for a movie that people put so much love, so much care into so much passion. And it's clearly going to be, I mean, and it, absurdly successful film just just okay. real quick it is interesting the idea of the daughter's line being the, the main heart of the movie um so from the the one review which uh again shout out to little platoon excellent film critic uh, that i've been following increasingly he found a uh an interview with uh greta gerwig thank you who said that the bus stop scene was actually the heart of the movie um, there's a scene where pretty much Barbie sits uh. down next to this older woman and they have kind of a heart to heart. And it's not that the point of it is something to the effect of it's a very humanist. Uh, so she's saying that she's trying to make a humanist um, film. And I don't think that that necessarily gets away from the criticism as radical individualism as well. But kind of that moment of in that moment, they're not woman and woman. They're not man and man. They're not man and woman. They are two humans that are helping each other. Um, and just kind of this this moment of genuine sympathy. Um, so it is interesting that that was take the, the daughter's rant was actually taken as the the main thesis. And I think understandably so, because the bus stop scene 
as legitimately like I I didn't remember. Oh, that it, was the but, best scene in the movie. Yeah, but I like looking back on it and thinking about it, it's like, yes, that was actually quite a moving scene. That was actually quite good. Um and also quite empowering and, and it did have feminist kind of qualities about it. But no one remembers that. They remember the daughter's rant as kind of the main thesis or as one of the ostensible theses of the movie given. Yeah. Oh, I uh yeah, yes to that. I have one of the points that I forgot to bring up, which was it's something that's been irking me and not just this, but in uh media overall. Uh this one, and it was right afterwards I watched the the Duggar documentary, which was very good, I thought. But both of those, um, it, it was a new phenomenon I've noticed where all of a sudden, magically overnight, the biggest, baddest, most evil group in the world, most powerful group of people in the world is the Supreme Court. And I thought that was very fascinating. I had not seen that in any movie or anything like, you know, you see the presidency or the UN or something like that. and in both Barbie, it's like they never mention women being in power in any other means, but the Supreme Court's all women, you know, or then the Supreme Court's all men. And it's like, where's the Barbie Supreme Court coming from? Um, and then same thing with the documentary was that the, the biggest and baddest thing that happened was packing the court with uh, with homeschoolers, um, which got a lot anyway, that. All I have to say is, yeah, all I have to say is it's just it's an interesting shift to see all of a sudden it's now. Um, very evil. The one other thing that I would say, just very briefly to what you said about the movie being about individualism, one interpretation that I've heard from a very uh, wise wife based on her readings is just that the fundamental point of Barbie is to teach you how to be alone. Actually, yeah, I totally buy that. Like the, the main message to both Ken and Barbie at the end is kind of go be your own person. Don't belong to anyone. Don't find your meaning in anyone, which on superficial level has some trappings of wisdom at least, but yeah, it is ultimately go be alone. Huh. All right. Well, a couple negative takes there. Uh, I do agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. Um, the my, What I wrote here is there's no discernible ethical compass to the movie. I think they tried to th- say a lot of things in one scene that I think probably... I had also read that interview about the bus stop scene. I, I think I read it in the context of maybe... Um, the studio or someone that was like one of the scenes on the chopping block. And they, it, Greta was like, Oh no, actually that's the heart mm-hmm. of the movie. I, I think is what would happen. Um, and, but the kind of heart as presented by the movie in terms of like where it takes place in the film and what is being said is the, the rant by the mother, right in Barbie land. And she's standing amongst the Barbies and she's like, and we, you know, whatever she says, like, we don't get to, we're expected to do this. And, and we, and we have to do this, but we can't do this. And, like two or three of the things I was like, that's fair. You know, that's an unrealistic expectation that society puts on women. And then the rest of them, I was like, that's just what like unrealistic, unreal expectations are like for anybody who has any kind of expectation of them. It's like do well in school and also be kind of nice to people and also like be generally considerate and like clean up after yours. Like it's like so basic and, uh, and wide, widely um, applicable just to like anybody. And I thought that it was pretty flawed in that sense, because if your whole point is that, oh man, it's so hard to be a woman, which is like basically her Ted talk within the film. She has a different Ted talk. That's better. I think on its own, but in the real world, but within the movie, her, her Ted talk is it's really hard to be a woman. And here's why. And all of her points almost were just, it's hard to be a person who is like a good person, like generally speaking. So that, that was something that I was reminded of as you guys were talking that didn't hit home for me and was a flaw that I kind of saw with the ethics of the film itself. Um, on a more positive note, uh, much like you guys said, visually, uh, 
very, very fun movie. I heard they actually like impacted the world market of like the color pink with the amount of like, because almost all the sets were practical. They built a lot of things, which also kind of like with Wes, Wes Anderson, it just provides a very kind of real setting for the movie, despite being an incredibly fantastical world. And I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, I've been kind of jamming out to the soundtrack a little bit. The the dance number at the beginning is like, I don't know, the, the Dua Lipa song is just very, uh, very, very catchy. Great, great radio tune. Um, and one kind of other non-philosophical take that I think about when I see this movie is it's an interesting take on a toy brand movie. We've seen a lot of toy brand movies in the past um, be very successful. Transformers comes to mind. Uh, G.I. Joe had a couple films things like that where they they take more of a literal approach like okay here's robots in disguise here's what it looks like you know and and they can you know spin it a couple different ways but in general it kind of takes the plot of the of the toys themselves and throws them in there but barbie is a very different animal because you have just like it's a doll it's anything what do you make a movie about uh about that with and i think that they did a very good job coming up with kind of an unexpected direction. Like when I heard they're making a Barbie movie, this is probably the last thing I would have thought of. I mean, female empowerment, sure, uh, probably would be a goal, but de- the kind of deconstruction of like society as a whole and uh, and gender roles and, and all the like goofiness with Mattel itself, that was very surprising to me. I did not anticipate that whatsoever. And so I'm interested if this will kind of usher in a new era where instead of making these fairly straightforward toy movies where it's like here's a transformer there it is in a live action film or the lego movie i thought was a good example of of that done well but um i wonder if we'll see more of this here take a creative person who has a certain vision and like allow them to actually have some creative freedom to run with that um i hope that's what happens i heard a, a pitch somebody got denied uh for a nerf movie where it's just a straight up action movie but all of the weapons are nerf guns and they never acknowledge it and i think that that sounds like a YouTube video, but at the same time, if put in the right person's hands, could be very entertaining as a film and do very well, similarly to how Barbie is done. So I'm curious if, if this kind of transforms the landscape. I My gut tells me that no, they will not learn anything from this and that, that what the lesson they will take is that all of our brands are marketable. Let's make a Uno movie and a Trouble movie. And a, like I foresee that happening um, rather than creatives being creative. But uh, I, I cross my fingers that we might have a more positive uh, future incoming. But uh, for me, uh, what, what is our oh, Mojo Dojo Houses? Mojo Dojo Casa Houses. Uh, six Mojo Dojo Casa Houses for me. Um, up points for visual style and creativity. Down points for the lack of a message and uh, miss for me when delivering uh, the message that they wanted to. To your point, Jess, I actually really did kind of like the not quite magical realism, but more like absurd realism or something. Like we're like. The Barbie world just had rules, and sometimes they were ostensibly self-contradictory, and its interaction with the real world was, like, very tenuous at best. But, like, just the—maybe it was a combination of the color palette, the dance numbers, the songs, the, like, overall atmosphere. I don't think I ever once got frustrated or upset with, like, you know, how does this world work? What's the mechanics of this? I, I thought they actually did—like, that was actually one of the better moments. And to your point, even if—well— even if we may or may not have liked the movie or what have you, I do like the idea of creatives just kind of throwing stuff out there and now getting rewarded for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good uh, synthesis of, of, of the Barbie movie. But now let's take a step back. Look at all these summer movies from Oppenheimer and, you know, real historical drama about people being vaporized to 
Asteroid City about dealing with the grief of said people being vaporized, and finally to Barbie to sublimating all of that into plastic girl toys with, you know, fancy costumes and Ken and Alan, of course, the best character in the movie by far. Uh, But Jensen, how would you wrap all this up? How do we tie together this summer of films? Uh, I would say (laughs) go back and see two of the best movies that I've seen in a long time. Guardians of Galaxy 3, absolutely incredible, and Across the Spider-Verse, literally 10 out of 10. Uh, But but talking about these three movies, I, I think... I think that it is very valuable to analyze these kind of films and kind of go back and and just look at the what is what is our culture saying about various subjects like uh, gender roles, the meaning of life, and how we view historical figures that are significant if flawed. And I, I think that overall, you just have to take away that having your own compass, ideally the biblical compass of like your general worldview is incredibly valuable because if you absorb what everyone else throws at you, you're going to be completely lost uh, or just nihilistic and everything. It means nothing and we got to just be awake or not and who cares. So <laughs> I think overall the message is be careful <laughs> uh, and, and you know, enjoy things, but also, you know, know that not everybody knows best and especially not Hollywood or producers. So yeah, that's true. Relatively few characters one would want to specifically emulate in any of these movies. Uh, well, that's depressing. Sam, can you bring us back? Maybe. I mean, more of a meta point about, about Hollywood in general is that I thought it was walking out of Oppenheimer. One of my main thoughts was that all three of these big movies, maybe because I was just thinking about it in context of this podcast, but it seemed like all three of these movies were kind of circling around that same idea. Um, Jensen, I think that you hit on it pretty well. It's like, they're all asked, like showing examples of what it's like to go through life without much of a moral compass and just the devastation that can happen there. Either, um, either just making a really strange film like Barbie or killing thousands and thousands of people. Um, but I thought it was interesting that we had three films that came out around the same time in the summer that people are declaring, you know, cinema is back. And they're all at, like strong themes in each of these movies is as, are asking the questions of like, why do we do, why do we take the actions that we, that we make? Why are we making the moral decisions that we make? What are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and about why we do these things? You know, Barbie's telling herself this story about her being a figure of liberation. Oppenheimer's telling himself this story. And like, that's a really specific plot element. I can't think of too many other films that like are asking that question and showing the conflict that comes out of the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves so overtly as these three films. And so it was, it was really interesting to see them all come out at the same time and take completely, completely different films and yet all point towards the same sort of conclusion um, or rather like point towards the same sort of void uh, that exists when you really can't explain why you're acting. Um, I thought that was fascinating and, and relieving to see that so many people from, from, you know, three different corners of Hollywood are willing to ask questions on that level. I'm excited if people keep making movies about this and if our next if our next installment in the Mattel cinematic universe is even, you know, half as philosophical as Barbie, um, I'll go see it. Uh, even, even if it doesn't really have a conclusion. Um, and I, and I am ultimately unsatisfied, unsatisfied by it. I just can't wait for the movie where Hot Wheels discovers the 
Kalam cosmological argument for God. That'll be that's like the next that's that's what we're really hoping for for next summer. Um, but speaking of, of hoping for the future, I mean, the real question for me, I think, is just, you know, are movies back? Because there was definitely a dry spell there. I have been off the Marvel train for quite a while now, basically after Endgame. Uh, and, you know, Spider-Verse, sure. But, I, like, we had a couple pretty solid movies this summer that are not superhero movies. We might be, you know, moving into a new Brave era. Um, the only downside uh and is just that we're still in the kiddle era uh because now we're just going to go back to n- nostalgia toys for everyone and run through the entire Mattel catalog for the next 3 years but if they give it to like interesting directors like Jensen said to just go absolutely crazy uh that would be the best case scenario but I'm not necessarily that optimistic yeah. it's also worth noting uh at least the, these movies but um most of the blockbusters of the summer, not Disney. I mean, Guardians 3, I guess. But beyond that, not much Disney going on, uh, which is interesting. Mer- Mermaid was a little little bit of a flop-ish. Definitely oh, yeah. didn't do what they thought it, would, it was going to do. I mean, they expected, like, you know, the next billion-dollar live-action remake, but it, I don't think it hit that hard. Indy 5 was also a massive disaster. That was a foundation yeah. disaster. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, <laughs> yeah, Disney's been taking a pounding recently. I've been keeping an eye on their stocks. It's actually been it's been dipping quite a bit. They're at nine year low. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where they wow. go from here. Yeah, I was surprised. I this summer I actually went to the movies a couple of times, just kind of f- for the fun of it. No friends, just like I was out in New Mexico, didn't know a ton of people, so I was like, well, I'll just go and see this movie, and it was fun. Like even if I didn't like Wes and or this particular Wes Anderson much, it was still kind of a fun thing to do. Um, same with uh, Opp- well, Oppenheimer, I thought was amazing, and it was a fun thing to do. And even Barbie was that at least it was something different. Um, even if I thought it was philosophically incoherent, at least it was something different. My my main question, I I am interested. So, Jensen, you brought Mattel as kind of the next wave of the the franchises. I've heard video games also being proposed. What with the success of the Mario Brothers movie, Mario Brothers movie, and um, the Last of Us show, um, I'm curious. Do you guys have any other thoughts on what the future could look like? What what if you had to place a bet? What do you think the future of uh, movies holds as far as franchises are concerned? Because I'm I'm half convinced that superheroes are dead. I mean, actively you have. I mean, video games they're always trying to adapt, and there's like the video game curse where every video game movie is a total flop, which is mostly true um mario being like one of the exceptions uh i mean there's also like the fantasy novel which usually gets adapted into like an expensive tv show that generally hasn't done well except for game of thrones um oh shoot i just thought of one more but i can't amazon tried to do wheel time but from what i understood that flopped it's i mean they're getting a season two but and i'll watch it sort of out of obligation but it's not good oh anime anime one piece live action is coming out like tomorrow or something and it looks just goofy and awful i i can't imagine that <laughs> they've been doing good. live action anime for a while now i think they tried cowboy bebop and it flopped and yeah they, that those have been pretty consistent flops as well i suppose now um i'm stealing your point a little bit steven but we have to move on uh in in terms of the return to practical effects i mean the only question after oppenheimer you know the, the or so so barbie built their own set right wes anderson builds his own set uh, in the middle of the Spanish desert, that's that's fantastic. But the only question with Oppenheimer, you know, is which like Pacific micro nation did 
uh, Christopher Nolan blow up with his nuclear bomb. Um, I don't know. We probably will never know. Possibly a nameless people, a nameless tribe. Uh, however, everyone liked it, which means we have to make more movies, gentlemen. So this is our game here in the closing moments of this episode. And we will each have the opportunity to pitch a movie from... Uh, well, so these movies, right? Because people love sequels, people love spinoffs. So we're going to pitch these movies, Oppenheimer, Barbie, and, and Asteroid City. But we're going to put a little twist. Because I think, you know, we're going to maybe think about a different genre. And maybe a different director with a different direction for this. And of course, we don't have enough money to fund everything. We've, uh, but So for the first one, uh, Sam and myself will be uh, looking at pitches uh, from Steven and Jensen. And uh, let's find out what movies you are pitching. Uh, so first, uh, Steven, let's see. You will be pitching Asteroid City as a superhero comedy by Quentin Tarantino. So go ahead and write that down. Okay, just a second. Superhero comedy by Quentin Tarantino. Yep. Asteroid okay, City. give me a second here. And Asteroid City. And and uh, Jensen, you will be pitching Oppenheimer as a disaster film by Scorsese. How does one spell Scorsese? All right. Uh, so we've taken a, a bit of a breather there. Uh Myself and Sam are here in the executive office, and we are ready to hear the pitch from our uh, two uh, producers, directors here. Uh, Steven, what are you pitching us today? Okay, so I've got something for you guys, and just brace yourselves because this is a big one. The title is Asteroid City. It's a, it's going to be a superhero comedy with Quentin Tarantino as the director. It's a great combination right here. So a man comes into a ghost town. The scientists are tense. The children are forced into labor to decode a message from beyond. These are the greatest children scientists of all times. An alien shows up, removing a single stone. Nothing comes from this, but the tension begins to build. The children begin exhibiting strange behaviors. Eventually, war photographer Augie Steinbeck kills everyone and combines their ashes with his beloved wife. I love it. And it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I would give that a lot of money, but I want to hear how much, or I, I want to hear what uh, Jensen has to say. What are you pitching us? All right. So I got something for you. It's, it's called Oppenheimer, right? It's going to be directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro as Italian New York businessmen on the ground floor of Nagasaki. Now they have to overcome the Yakuza and seal the deal. Meanwhile, something else is coming. And right at the climax of the movie, the bomb is dropped. Buildings are falling over and they literally have to outrun the blast radius of the bomb. And we're going to have a sweet shot of Leo and DiCaprio, or sorry, DiCaprio and De Niro, like running towards the camera. The bomb is going off behind them. And then they're going to like jump and hide behind like a bunker. And then like the building's going to fall and the bomb's going to go like right over their heads. And they're going to just like make it out and then, you know, get back to, uh, to their Italian uh, New York family and, and do something like that. So, wow. I am blown away. Absolutely blown away. Uh, I have how much money I'm giving each of these. Uh, Sam, do you? No, uh, is it a million that we have to divide between the two of them, or is it? Just no, it's just up to, a, up to a million. up to a million for each one. Okay. All right. I, I do you have yours because don't let mine influence yours. Is the is the only thing. This is very arbitrary. Yeah, I think I I think I have mine. Okay. So for Stephen, I will be giving you four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I think this has potential. I want to get this off the ground. Sam, how much you you 
giving him? Or maybe I was highballing on giving him $800,000 because it seems like it's going to be lower budget. So, you know, versus Jensen giving $900,000 because we just need to pump that thing with CGI and all right. just go all the way. So it looks like uh, Steven's going to end up with $1,250,000, but Jensen, because I'm giving him $800,000, is going to have $1.7 baby. You can make this. I want all the... Right. I want the most CGI uh, bomb explosion I have ever seen. It's all going to be practical. Don't worry about it. I don't know if I gave you an It's going to be an actual, an actual bomb, right? Yeah. 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 There's all no right. VFX shots in the whole movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so now it is uh, Sam and my turn. Oh, great. Uh, so for Sam, you will be doing Asteroid City as a space opera. Ooh. Oh, great. By Greta Gerwig. <laughs> So go ahead and write that the down. only Greta Gerwig movie I've seen is Barbie. So, and I've heard her other movies are just, much just make it Catholic. That's that's the key. Make it Catholic. And then for myself, okay. I will be doing Barbie as a buddy cop, buddy cop, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Okay. All right, give us a second. I can't type in Riak. Okay, let me go first because yours is gonna be better. I don't know. Ask the. I'm not the executive. We'll be the judge of that. Take a seat. Let's set the scene. So you know how people love the space operas. They love Star Wars. They love that Star Trek. And you know who the critics love? They loved Lady Bird. So I say, put them together. Picture this. Father and his son roll in the town. The son is, he's angsty. He's dyed his hair. He is not engaged in church. The only thing different is he's Episcopalian. That's a key point here. Um, his mother's just died and he's really contemplating whether he can hold on to his face after on his faith after cremating her and putting her in a Tupperware. Um, as he's struggling with his relationship with his father, um, with his relationship with this girl he just met, which is causing the question all parts of his identity, uh, suddenly an alien comes down. Um, but he doesn't just watch the alien. The alien picks him up and transports him into a technicolor world. A world with um, a journey through space and time where there's song and dance and Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum everywhere, for sure. All the aliens are just Jeff Goldblum. And he, um, it's a wild journey, three hours long. And through all of it, he learns to trust himself and maybe become Catholic. But it's unclear. We would like to keep it opaque at the end there. Um, they're going to love it. We got the space. We've got the critics. It's a no-brainer. Sounds like a hit. Oh, sounds excellent. Uh, and Abrevin, what do you have for it today? All right. So I got just the thing. I've been workshopping this for months. I have already planned out that every single shot in this film is going to need to be taken 127 times. So we, we will need the budget for that. So, you know, high, high ball me here. All right. So hear me out. This is a Barbie. It's great IP. It's a buddy cop movie. And I got Stanley Kubrick. All right. So the first 20 minutes is just Barbie, played by Margot Robbie. Barbie cop, cop Barbie, and uh, Eddie Murphy. But Eddie Murphy also inexplicably changes into Jack Nicholson without explanation, and this will happen throughout the entire movie. Uh, so they are, the, the, the first 20 minutes are them driving down this uh, city street, and it's completely empty, just papers flying everywhere. And the camera angles just change as they drive in slow motion down the street. Every shot is perfect 
perfectly manufactured. Again, these are the ones that we're going to have to take 127 times. Uh, and then, uh, inexplicably, they then uh, run over, like, probably 30 to 40 uh, apes that are just, like, randomly appear in the road. Then we speed up, and we go into the Eddie Murphy portion, and he just starts going crazy. He's describing everything. Margot Robbie is the uh, is the, the happy sidekick as they're going after the obelisk boys, who are, you know, spreading patriarchy and the AI in their car, uh, K-E-N, or Ken, as we'll call him, uh, you know, starts betraying them and trying to, like, use the, the, the eject buttons to, to shoot them out, uh, because he's actually allied with the obelisk boys, uh, which, you know, it's a very phallic symbol. Oh, I should mention this movie is X-rated because there will be gratuitous erotica everywhere, again, with no explanation. Uh, and then the big scene in the movie is they've cornered the obelisk boys. They've been, you know, shooting bullets back and forth. There's just one door in between them and the obelisk boys, and they are going to get them and finally bring peace to the city. And Eddie Murphy, because it will be him at this point, not Jack Nicholas, although that will change in like the, the second part of the, the clip. So it'll start as Eddie Murphy, then change it to Jack Nicholas. And uh, he'll look at Barbie and say, it's time to go plastic mode. And then he will ram her head directly through the door into the obelisk boys and Bar and Margot Robbie will shout, here's Barbie. And uh, yeah, that'll, that'll be the movie. So it's Jack Nicholas, the golfer, Jack Nicholson and Eddie Murphy, or were you talking about Jack Nicholson? Jack Nicholson. Okay. <laughs> yes. Is what I said the whole time. Specifically. Just, yeah, just okay. how, how many gallons of blood will we need to stock up for some of these reshoots? Like, are we pouring them out of one elevator, two There's elevators? There's no reshoots. It's all, you have to do it in order. So um, you yeah, only do it one time, but um, 127 times. But 127 times perfectly. Yeah, yeah, we'll need it. Honestly, we're just going to like rent one of those uh, like firefighting airplanes and drop it out of that. Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Uh, all I right, think I'm prepared to write some checks. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I got to I gotta crunch the numbers here just a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bro, I'm surprised you didn't start at how Barbie actually starts. I know, I know. I, I, I feel like that was a, a bit of a low thing because because you had space opera, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to go full. That's where I started. Then I didn't want to copy the space opera dangle because I was going to have like a giant Barbie shoe descending from the clouds. But anyway, it's fine. All right. I think I'm ready. You, Joseph? Yep. All right. Sam? You you got me with the uh, the ostensible Episcopalian to ostensible Catholic. I do love me some non-committal in my religion, so I'm giving you half a mil. Six hundred thousand for me. Uh, I I don't want to give you too little here, but I also want you to work within the constraints of your budget. I think that's where the real uh, juicy cult classic comes from in the space opera genre. I think they're a little bit overbloated these days, and I want you to kind of make it work with the practical effects and you know in, do with what indie you space have. opera. Indie we space opera, it. exactly, exactly. Yep. Got the tidy one point one. I like it. Remember the uh, one hundred twenty-seven shots and uh, copious amounts of erotica just reached to my executive heart. Mm. That depraved cold cold stone of a heart. Uh, so you got eight hundred. Seven hundred and fifty for me. The NC seventeen rating is going to be hard to overcome in terms of box office numbers, but I think we can do a lot with VHS sales. I guarantee <laughs> it. People will be pausing this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, and I think that's as good a place as any to end. Uh, so for everyone end. here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Drevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm Jensen. And this has been Movie Mondays. On a Tuesday. And it'll come out on a Thursday. If we're lucky, I have stuff to do this week. Maybe next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a week from next Thursday.